Hi, thank you and uh, welcome everybody. Nice to see that so many people have taken the time to join us here in, in Oslo at Felix Conference Center, uh, despite energy stocks now being at the lowest level since the Pearl Harbor attack in uh, December 1941, according to FT yesterday. Um, since we have a physical presentation, uh, maybe worthwhile uh, mentioning the fire exits, one in the front, one in the back. And uh, also we have a warning from the lawyers here with the disclaimer, and the full disclaimer is available in the presentation. Uh, we have a pretty big agenda here today, as we have our 2020 Investor Day, in addition to the regular quarterly reporting. Uh, we will kick off with the regular financial reporting together with the market update, and then we will go through a couple of teams in the L&D space, which we will uh, dig a bit deeper into uh, today. Um, the regular part of the section will be followed by a Q&A session, and then we will uh, have a couple of teams after the coffee break. First, we have uh, Lars Pedersen, who is the Chief Technology Officer in uh, Frontline and also the Managing Director of Flex LNG Fleet Management, our in-house ship management company. Uh, he will uh, spend some time describing uh, some technology perspectives and how we are running our ships, uh, both in the group and also in uh, Flex LNG. And then, afterwards, uh, we were pleased to have an external speaker, uh, Torlet Madsen, uh, who is the CEO of Compact Carbon Capture. Uh, and the company he runs uh, is focused on uh, capturing car carbon from uh, fossil fuels. Uh, uh, and uh, the company he is heading has also won a lot of awards and prizes during the last year or so, and I will mention a couple of them. Energy Innovation Pioneer at Sierra Week 2020 in Houston, one of four technologies presented at the OGCI Investment Day in Chicago, and I will come back to the OGCI a bit later in the presentation. Uh, also, the top six at Green Tech Festival in Berlin, as well as participation in the Repsol Acceleration uh, Program. Uh, Torlife is also a board member of the Norwegian CO2 Handling Association and also part of the Norwegian Ministry of Industry and Trade expert group for making strategy for decarbonizing the process industry. So uh, we were very much looking forward to this. Uh, some might wonder why we are, you know, including carbon capture in our investor day here today, and, and it's basically because, you know, in order to meet the, the ambitious uh, targets for reducing global warming, uh, we are dependent on carbon capturing becoming a commercial success. Uh, and the good thing with LNG or natural gas is the fact that it's British clean hydrocarbon. It's the cleanest hydrocarbon, uh, which reduces the local pollution uh, significantly compared to the other fossil fuels. And combined with uh, carbon capture, you are virtually creating hydrogen. And, and that's also why the uh, natural gas is, the, of course, the majority feedstock for hydrogen today. Uh, lastly, we would like to thank all the banks participating here today. We've signed the $629 million ECI financing yesterday, and uh, we'll have a small signing celebration of that following the Investor Day. So let's jump to the highlights for the quarter. Uh, 
We delivered revenues of 52 million dollars for the quarter. Uh, this is up for uh, around 30 million in Q3, and in line with the guidance we presented of somewhere between 50 to 55 million dollars. Uh, the TCE rate was 94 thousand dollars per day, uh, compared to 58 in third quarter, and actually compares very favorable also to the TCE achieved in Q4 18, when we achieved. $95,000 per day at uh, the strongest uh, LNG shipping market ever. So we're very pleased with the, the, the trading results uh, for the quarter. Adjusted EBITDA, net income, uh, best ever also at uh, around 42 and 24 million respectively for uh, the fourth quarter. And this gives us an earnings per share of 44 cents uh, for the quarter. Um, the board decided to pay out a dividend uh, similar to Q3 of 10 cents, uh, and this will be payable at the end of March. Uh, we have had some feedback that uh, the dividend is a bit below expectation. I think consensus expectation on the dividend was 16 cents. The median uh, estimate was probably a bit higher, maybe 20 cents, uh, and the reason for being a bit prudent and preserving cash at this time is because of the disruptions both in the physical market where we have seen uh, some disruption, especially in China because of the coronavirus, and then also in the financial market that I mentioned briefly in the, the beginning with energy stocks really tumbling all around the world at uh, new lows. Uh, as I mentioned also, we signed the $629 million ECA financing yesterday, according to plan. And during the last couple of months, we also added significant backlog to the company, seven years in total, uh, one year each for Flex Ranger and Flex Enterprise, uh, and then uh, five years for the new building Flex Artemis with Gunvor, with uh, startup uh, early Q3 2020. Uh, Lars will uh, also later in the presentation do some uh, more explanation of our in-house ship management, Flex LNG fleet. We have so far transferred four of the ships on the water to this new ship management company. Furthermore, and lastly, we have also continued to strengthen our team with the uh, appointment of uh, Ben Martin as chief commercial officer. He joins us from Trafigura, where he's been for the last 10 years, and he's done a lot of charters uh, with Marius Foss, who has been heading all the commercial side alone uh, so far. Uh, we are growing our fleet now from 6 to 13 ships, and I think it's uh, good to also strengthen the commercial team. And uh, he, he, he is, uh, you know, the perfect guy for us, and I'm sure we have actually, you know, the strongest commercial team in the LNG industry. When it comes to guidance we have the following status of our ships flex endeavor uh, has been trading spot since she was re-delivered from uniper 30th of june 2019 and of course then benefited from a very strong market in the second half of 2019 uh, flex enterprise was uh, taken on a variable tc uh, end of march 2019 and has uh, recently been extended to end of March 2021. Uh, this is a variable time charter with a super major, 
uh, and you know by that fact we are exposed to the market but eliminating the utilization risk uh, and uh, as mentioned there are options there for further extension flex ranger uh, also briefly mentioned she's on a time charter with nl uh, and uh, the subsidiary of nl and desa have taken her on a new time charter starting up in the middle of 2020 until middle of 21 with option for one more a year. Uh, we also have a variable time charter for Flex Rainbow. Uh, we have, uh, since this is only six months, we have uh, not uh, put out an announcement on this, but we disclosed all the details here in the 20F, and this has been extended now to uh, Q3 2020. Uh, Flex Constellation and Flex Courageous was delivered in July and August uh, 2019. Uh, we took them into a very strong spot market in the second half of uh, 2019, and they are also today trading spot. So that, this means we have uh, covered basically 50% of the days through contracts in Q1, also Q2, and uh, for most part of, uh, of Q3 as well. Um, for the new buildings, they are all on schedule, actually a bit ahead of schedule. We have uh, Flex Aurora, Amber, Volunteer, and Vigilant, which is our XDF ships. They are a bit ahead of schedule, and that's why we have this uh, odd box next to them where we have target uh, date and, and then also the contractual date on these. So we will see whether we will be growing our fleet by actually six or five ships this year. Uh, based on the fixtures we've done to date, we expect and anticipate the TC for Q1 to be close to $70,000. It's, of course, subject to kind of no disruptions and uh, the chips uh, being fixed in the spot market able to meet the next lake hand. But uh, 70000 is a number which we are pretty happy with. Uh, cash break-even is less than $50,000, so we should be generating a, a fair amount of free cash flow also in Q1. So if we look at uh, our back-of-the-envelope uh, calculation of uh, our uh, financial returns, uh, it's a bit important to take into consideration that most of our assets are still at the yard. We raised all the equity we needed. We've raised around $840 million of, of equity, and about half of this is employed. So we have six ships on the water. Seven are still at the yard, generating zero income. The average book value for the ships in operations is around $190 million. The average gross debt is around $130 million. That leaves around $60 million in equity contribution each ship. Then we have $130 million of cash at the end of the year, which is equal to around $10 million per ship. There's still some equity contribution to be made for the new building in 2020 and 2021. So that's why we are holding more cash than necessarily needed. Uh, our cash covenant at the end of the year is around $35 million. And, and working capital in, in, in LNG shipping is fairly minimal. You know, all voyages in LNG shipping are PCs. Uh, they are not voyage charters. So this means you are getting paid in advance, which limits your need for working capital. And usually if all ships are on contract, uh, the working capital is actually negative. So if we kind of uh, split the cash 
uh, $10 per ship. That means that each ship has $70 million in equity contribution. Uh, uh, and that leaves around $420 million of our equity today being employed in operating assets. Or this is around 50% of our book equity. If you then take this $24 million net income, which is actually also a similar number to the free cash flow. So if you look at our operating cash flow, adjust for VC, the working capital, which tends to fluctuate from quarter to quarter, and then deduct the ordinary repayment of debt, you also come to a similar number. So that gives an annualized return on employed equity of around 25% for the quarter. Once we are fully invested, based on our capital structure, uh, a TCE of around 65, which is about the number we had in TCE for 2019, will give an equity return of around 10%. At $75,000 per day, the return jumps to 15%. So just uh, one last slide before heading over to, to Harald for the financial numbers. Uh, just to summarize our fleets, we have six ships on the water. We have the initial ships uh, where the equity contribution was $210 million. We raised $257.5 million of debt on these ships. We raised $329 million of equity in 2017 for those four ships we acquired. And we have raised $550 million of debt on these ships. This is a $250 million debt financing, bank financing we did last year, as well as the $300 million Globus lease. Then we raised $300 million of equity in uh, 2018. Uh, and, and those uh, uh, seven ships, we have now raised financing for the five ships with uh, delivery date in 2020. And this is the $629 million ETA financing we signed yesterday and announced the commitment there at uh, November for our uh, third quarter presentation. So altogether, we raised $840 million of equity, which is the equity need to run our business. Uh, and it's also the number we will find in the, the balance sheet as the book equity. And then we have raised so far about $1.4 billion of attractive long-term debt financing with maturities from 2024 to 2032. So that's it. I will come back a bit later to present some uh, market status, outlook, and, and some teams. Before. Okay, Harald. Okay, thank you, Einstein. Uh, starting out with the, the income statement, uh, we delivered revenues of 52 million in the quarter in line with our guidance. and. Uh, up from uh, 29.8 million in the previous quarter. Uh, adjusted EBITDA was uh, 42 million, uh, up from uh, 22 million in the previous quarter. Uh, vessel operating expenses uh, were a bit uh, up in the quarter, uh, mainly due to planned maintenance on the vessels and also training on the vessels, as well as a full quarter with uh, six vessels on the water. Uh, overall for the year, uh, vessel OPEX came in at around $12,500 per day per vessel, so that's uh, in line with the budget. Uh, administrative expenses were down in the quarter. Uh, this is mainly due to uh, some uh, one-off costs in the third quarter in connection with the U.S. listing. Uh, 
uh, while interest expenses uh, were up in in the quarter uh, due to a full quarter of uh, interest on the 250 million facility, where we drew down the last tranche in uh, in August, the 125 million for Courageous, and also a full quarter uh, of interest on the 300 million uh, Hyundai Glovis lease financing, which we closed in uh, in end July. Uh, we had a positive mark-to-market on interest rate swaps of uh, 1.6 million. This is uh, non-cash, uh, compared to a loss of uh, 900,000 uh, in the in the previous quarter. So overall, this gave a net income of around uh, 24 million or 44 cents per share, uh, up from uh, 500,000 or one cent per share in the previous quarter. Uh, for the full year 19, uh, we reported a net income of 17 million or. 31 cents per share. Uh, moving on to our balance sheet, uh, we had a strong uh, liquidity, as I mentioned, of $129 million at the uh, year end. Uh, we had no vessel deliveries in the quarter, and the assets uh, consisted uh, of six vessels on the water uh, with a book value of around $1.15 billion. The vessel purchase prepayment of uh, $349 million uh, relates to the seven new buildings under construction, and th- that represents the prepayments we made on these. I'll come back to that. Total debt at the year end was uh, $779 million, of which uh, $35 million is due over the next 12 months. And total equity was 839 giving a strong equity ratio of 51%. Looking at the cash flow, we had operational cash flow of uh, 37 million uh, for the quarter, up from 8.4 million in the previous quarter. Uh, we did not take delivery of any vessels, uh, but had a scheduled loan installments uh, of 8.5 million, and also paid a dividend of uh, 5.4 million. We also did a drawdown of the 49 million under the revolving tranche under the 100 million facility for Ranger. So overall, we had a net cash flow of 72.5 million uh, for the quarter and ended the year with 129 million in liquidity. Uh, looking at the full year, the operational cash flow was uh, 51 million. Uh, the new billing capex relates to Constellation and Courageous uh, and the final payments there upon delivery. Uh, while the proceeds from uh, long term debt, uh, is mainly the 250 million facility uh, for Constellation Courageous, the 300 million sale and uh, lease pack with Hyundai Glovis for uh, Endeavor and Enterprise, and the 100 million refinancing Ranger. Uh, and we also prepaid uh, our sort of initial uh, 350 million dollar facility uh, upon uh, drawdown of these uh, other tra- tranches, also getting rid of some uh, restrictive covenants. Uh, as mentioned, it was an active year, uh, 2019, uh, on the financing side, uh, raising 1.3 billion uh, in uh, new financing, basically turning over most of the, the financing portfolio. Um, at the same time, we also diversified uh, our funding base uh, with uh, lease financing, uh, traditional bank financing, and also most recently, the ECA facility, which we signed yesterday. We also expanded our relationship uh, on, the, on the banking side, uh, which now includes uh, 14 of the leading international financing providers, and also demonstrates our ability to raise uh, financing at attractive terms uh, in a market where many struggle to raise financing at all. Moving on to the 
to the funding of the company uh, and the remaining capex, uh, you know, with the financing secured for the five new buildings delivering this year, uh, we have limited remaining unfunded capex. Uh, as mentioned, we prepaid the uh, capex of 349, uh, which represents 30% of five of the vessels and 20% on two of them. The net remaining payment uh, on the five new buildings uh, this year is around 11 million per vessel, which uh, is intended funded from uh, from our uh, you know available liquidity. Uh, the 629 million facility we signed yesterday also includes a, a 50 million upsize option in case of uh, long-term charters acceptable to lenders. So that may also uh, be something we, we utilize for that if we attract uh, longer-term charters. Uh, for the 2021 new billings, the remaining capex is uh, 126 million per vessel. And that's uh, pretty much in line with uh, the recent uh, bank financings we've done and, uh, you know, well below the the 150 million uh, Glovis uh, saving charter bank. Touching a bit more upon each of the financings, uh, you know, the ECA facility we announced in November and are happy to uh, announce that it was signed yesterday. Uh, the facility was substantially oversubscribed with commitments from uh, Kexim and uh, 11 of the leading shipping banks. Uh, you know, total facility is 629 million, 125.8 per vessel. Kexim uh, will provide uh, 379 million in direct loans and guarantees. And there's also a commercial bank tranche of 250 million. Uh, the Kexim commitment, that's for up to 12 years, uh, while the commercial bank loan has a, a term of five years from the final delivery, which is scheduled for November 2020. Average repayment profile, 20 years, uh, an average margin of 2.2%, uh, including the, the Kexin premium we pay up front, uh, which gives a very attractive uh, all-in cost of uh, you know, below 4%. We've also actually uh, hedged uh, 275 million of the interest rate exposure already at, for five years at the average of 1.36 per annum. Uh, financial covenants, uh, that's sort of our standard covenant package on the, on the bank financings, uh, only linked to the balance sheet, which we think is important. Uh, and drawdown of this facility is expected upon delivery of each vessel in 2020. Then over to the $300 million uh, lease financing with Hyundai Globis, uh, which we executed in July last year uh, and freed up uh, over $100 million in uh, liquidity. Uh, the structure has a 10-year sale and time charter transaction, whereby we sold the vessels uh, to Hyundai Globis for $210 million per vessel, with a net consideration of $150 million per vessel, a net of a $60 million seller credit per vessel. Uh, the charters, they have fixed monthly payments, uh, which gives an annuity-style repayment profile, and an all-in cost of around 6%. Uh, we have annual repurchase options from the third anniversary, and there's also a put-call structure at 75 million per vessel at the expiry of the charters in uh, July 2029. So this gives a 20-year repayment profile, or 21 and a half years if you age adjust it. Uh, there, there are no financial covenants in this, and, and also no requirement for firm employment, which is also the case under the ECF. Uh, the second lease we have is an uh, Asian lease, 
uh, more traditional sail and lease back on, on a bareboat basis. Uh, we did this in July 2018. It's also a 10-year lease uh, at LIBOR plus 3.5% and with a 20-year repayment profile. Uh, here we have annual repurchase options from the second anniversary, so starting this year. And there's also a call option at uh, 78.75 million uh, at the expiry of the lease in July 2028. Uh, which, uh, and the only financial covenant for this is max borrowing of 75% of total assets for Flex LNG and also no requirement for fixed employment of the vessel. Uh, the 250 million terminal facility we, for Constellation and Courageous, we did in July last year. That was quite an active month. Uh, bears interest at the LIBOR plus an attractive margin of 2.35 per annum. Uh, has a term of five years from final delivery, which was in August 19. 20-year uh, repayment profile, uh, also no requirement for fixed employment. Uh, same standard financial covenants linked to the balance sheet. Here we also hedged uh, 125 million of the interest rate exposure at 2.12% uh, per annum, which gives an attractive all-in cost of around 4.5% currently. Moving on to the 100 million term loan and revolving facility. This was also executed uh, around uh, July last year. Uh, it's split into a 50 million term loan and a 50 million revolving facility, which gives us uh, good flexibility in uh, cash management, you know, saving interest if we repay the revolver. It's uh, priced at LIBOR plus 2.25%, so also a very attractive uh, margin. Has a tenor of five years and a repayment profile of 19 years. There's also no requirement for fixed employment, and again, includes the, the standard covenants linked to the balance sheet. Uh, here we've uh, entered into interest rate swaps for uh, $50 million at 1.39%, and this one matures in July 2024. So that brings us to the last slide, which is an overview of the, of the debt maturity schedule. Uh, you know, we have secured uh, long-term uh, funding with our first maturity due in July 2024. Uh, we've also uh, created a staggered debt maturity profile, uh, which mitigates the refinancing risk. And with that, I will hand the word back to Øystein, who will give us an update on the market. Okay, thanks. Uh, we'll then head into the short-term outlook for the market. Just to do a review of the, the last couple of uh, quarters here. Uh, we started off with our market who took off in uh, August, September 2018, driven by you know, very strong demand from Asia, and particularly China. This was also a time when you had extremely strong Order prices on the LNG hitting close to $12 in Asia and also hitting close to $10 eventually in, in Europe. Uh, the strong demand from Asia, the big net back from US, 
Croatia and the arbitrage spread between Europe and and, uh, and Asia resulted in record high charter rates hitting well below well above two hundred thousand dollars per day. Uh, then we had a very warm winter in China, especially in, in Asia, due to El Nino uh, in the Pacific. Additionally, the Chinese bought too much LNG with the memory of the winter season 17-18 in the back of the head. So this uh, re resulted in liquidation of the floating storage and uh, plummeting charter rates in the beginning of 2019. We then saw a strong growth over the summer due to a lot of volumes coming on stream, especially from the U.S. And volume growth in 2019 altogether was around 36 million tons, uh, slightly higher than the volume growth seen in, in 2018. So uh, with also more cargoes shifting to, to Asia, uh, sailing distances started to increase uh, in third and fourth quarter of 19. Uh, and with the contango, the, a big contango in the gas prices, this was one of the main themes we had last year. We started talking about this early in 2019, that uh, we were bullish on the second half of 19 because spot prices for LNG was very low, while uh, future prices were much higher. So there was, during the summer, you could buy European gas, TTF, at around $3, uh, and Asian futures was close to $8. And uh, what tends to happen then is people will buy volumes for storage, and that's what exactly what happened. And uh, the build-up in floating storage uh, at similar levels seen in 2018 resulted in the market basically being sold off in October, with rates hitting in around $150,000 for the modern tonnage. And not, not the same level as uh, 2018, given the fact that gas prices and demand was much more supportive, uh, but still pretty good market. Additionally, we had some Middle East tension and uh, uncertainty uh, around sanctions, especially with regard to the Costco ships, and this really took off with the market uh, in, I would say, September, October, November, before the market started tapering off because of uh, backwardation in the gas prices, as well as uh, the solvement of the Costco sanctions as well as also a very warm uh, winter once again, which I will also come back to. Then we have had a further leg down uh, recently. Uh, January, you had the warmest January on record. And then we had the coronavirus outbreak in China, um, mostly from February, driving uh, demand down with the extension of the lunar vacation. Uh, if we look at uh, the flows, so the flows are pretty interesting here. We try to kind of summarize them in a uh, quite easy way to, 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 to for you. Uh, in, in, as mentioned, in 2018, it was all about Asia. So of the 31 million tons uh, production growth, uh, 30 million tons went to, uh, to Asia. Uh, so you could see here from the graph that, you know, uh, the American volumes uh, uh, and the rest of the world volumes, as well as all the inter-Asian volumes, ended up in Asia. And you also had reloads volumes going to Asia. So you get 3 million tons of European volumes being reloaded going to Asia. And that was 
the main driver for a very strong market at the end of 2018, and also resulting in increased tailing distances by around 3.4% to, to slightly above 4,000 nautical miles. So with the weaker demand in Asia, in 2019, we've seen a shift in trading pattern, which we have talked about previously, but you see the North American volumes mostly hitting Europe. The rest of the world volumes, mostly this includes the Qatari volumes, also hitting Europe. Uh, no reloads uh, to Asia, and uh, Europe ending up with 34 million of the 36 million tons of production growth uh, in 2019. Uh, and again, this resulted in sailing distances being shortened. Uh, sailing distances from Gulf of Mexico to Europe is about half of the sailing distance to China or Korea. Uh, despite this, actually, the shipping market tightened in uh, 2019. The ton mile increased higher than the, the fleet, only around 38 ships for delivery in, in 2019. So the market was structurally tighter, and we expected it actually to be much tighter, but uh, the sailing distances and the trading pattern kind of uh, made uh, the market uh, a bit weaker in 2019 than uh, 2018. So if we look at uh, where the volumes are going, and it's quite uh, a surprising uh, graph here to the left, uh, we're actually eight of ten biggest absolute growth market in 2019 was European-based. And uh, you have a country like United Kingdom with about 60 million inhabitants in the midst of uh, a Brexit uh, uh, contraction, or not contraction, but at least a fairly low GDP growth of less than 1.5%. They are growing in absolute volume stronger than China, which has about 1.4 billion people, and growing at around 6.5% six, six, six in, 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 in 2019. So uh, this is a bit surprising. And uh, of course, it's also related to the graph to the right. And it's about low gas prices. Gas prices are very cheap. And also, you have the added stimuli in Europe, and the UK especially, with carbon pricing. And that's the main reason why UK have gone from having 40% of the power generation being linked to coal as uh, recently as 2012. And last year, coal share was only 2%. So uh, gas is basically pricing out coal from UK. And the same is going to happen in some of the other European countries. It's already happening. So uh, gas and renewables is pricing out coal from Europe. Uh, if we look at the product markets, these are the kind of the achieved rates, and they are not necessarily the same as the future curve. So if you look at the graph here now, you, you wouldn't really see a big contango in the gas prices in 2019. But early in 2019, the future prices was totally different than the, the graphs shown here. But uh, what it explains is that you still you had this contango end of 19, and now recently we've been in backwardation. So it doesn't really... Uh, I, it, it's not really supportive having floating storage when you have a backwardation and LNG is cheaper in the next month. Uh, and the backwardation will last now until 
around April, which tends to be the bottom for the LNG market before we're heading into Fontango again uh, in, in, when we're starting approaching autumn and winter season. But still, you know, pretty low prices. But also bear in mind that uh, the kind of the spot prices here are only 30% of the market. 70% uh, of the market are still linked to oil. And this could be Brent, or it's usually it's linked to the Japanese crude cocktail, uh, a typically a 13% slope, and that gives you a price of you know, around $8. And if we look at the cargos we are discharging, which are priced on Brent, where we are able to declare heel, uh, those prices tend to be in that area. So uh, we focused on uh, five factors uh, in September, October presentation. We were talking a lot about these factors, you know, which would be the main drivers of uh, the market, uh, the winter market this year. Uh, and to summarize, we just made this graph uh, to explain the drivers. It's, of course, related to the weather. So it's the weather in the U.S. You know, mild winter in the U.S. means low Henry Hub. Uh, mild winter in Europe means, and Asia means less demand. So these are uh, factors driving gas demand. This is the heating demand. We also have politics, which becomes uh, more uh, important these days and uh, has definitely impacted the LNG market, especially with the trade conflict between China and the U.S. It's about economics, and this is related to the price of uh, LNG compared to the substitutes, mainly renewables, coal, and oil. And then, of course, we have the events, which are a bit unpredictable, and, and the black swans, uh, which are also a, a major driver in the short term. So if we we'll first look at the weather, so 2019 altogether was the second warmest year on record, uh, only 0 0.04 degrees, uh, less warm than uh, the record in 2016. But uh, January 2020 was by far the warmest month on record, and the record goes back 141 years there. Uh, and if you also look at the temperatures in the left uh, bottom here, you do see that Europe is definitely heating up in December and January uh, this year with, uh, you know, no winter here in, in Oslo this year. Um, and, of course, this is affecting uh, the demand for heating. And uh, this has been, a, a, you know, a adverse effect for LNG demand. If we go, turn to politics, there's been a lot of events <laughs> this, uh, this autumn and, and winter. Uh, we, of course, had the U.S.-China trade conflict going on for quite some time now. Uh, we had at least our first step with the phase one signing on 15th of January, which creates a bit more optimism in, uh, I would say, the general shipping uh, community. Uh, the Chinese are undertaking to buy $200 million more of European, uh, of U.S. Uh, exports in 2020-2021, and of this, uh, around a quarter of $50 billion is energy. Um, and uh, on uh, February 18, the China finally announced that they will give tariff exemptions for U.S. LNG imports, which has been 
of course, uh, negative for the LNG market recently with not a single U.S. Uh, cargo going into China since uh, April. Uh, we also saw this week that uh, the Chinese government are coming in and, and are also reducing the gas prices, so they are uh, going to off-season gas prices already now, rather than waiting to 1st of April to stimulate, stimulate the economy given the coronavirus effects. And uh, if we look at, you know, there's a lot of analysts given different numbers on this 50 million, how they will be split. Is it achievable? What will it mean for different energy products? We have this uh, simulation from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And if you look at the graph here, they assume LNG import volumes will be picking up from the U.S. And it's also kind of the signals we are seeing. And uh, uh, talking to the Chinese, this is uh, something they will have to do in order to meet the targets. Uh, right now, I think they've been too busy with uh, lackluster demand and uh, uh, disruptions. Uh, but uh, it, it will be interesting to see how this develops. But we do def definitely think that more U.S. LNG will be heading to China, and it will be good for ton mileage. Uh, furthermore, it's been a lot of uh, development on uh, Russian pipelines. We had the Ukrainian transit agreement being resolved on 30th of December, which was one day before the existing 10-year contract expired. This is pretty big volumes. So 2018, it was 84 BCM transiting through Ukraine. Uh, that's uh, close to you know 60 million tons, so close to all the LNG imports in, in Europe. So uh, under the new agreement, uh, Russians are undertaking, or Gazprom is undertaking to transit minimum 65 BCM in 2020 and then going down to 40 BCM for the next four years. Uh, so uh, flows will probably be reduced from this pipeline. On the other hand, uh, North Stream 2 has been hit by sanctions by the Americans. So uh, the, the, this startup of this new pipeline is probably going to be delayed by one year, uh, and the capacity for this pipeline is around 55 BCM. We also had uh, two other pipelines starting. Uh, the Turk Stream, uh, these are two strings, 15.7 BCM each, one going to Turkey, one going to Southeast uh, Europe, uh, with mostly the Turkish volumes starting to flow now. And then we have the power of Siberia starting in December of 2019. It's a pretty big ramp up on this uh, pipeline. Capacity is 38 BCM. We expect volumes to be only 5 BCM in 2020, heading up to 10 BCM in 2021, as they will have to complete the processing plant in Amur before they can ramp up the volumes to capacity. Also, uh, relevant to know here, uh, prices on this pipeline is related to oil price. So in the current environment, LNG, especially for coastal areas, are much more competitive than gas flowing through uh, the pipeline with oil price link uh, tariffs. If we look at the economics, uh, we have the different uh, fossil fuels. Uh, we have coal, which is uh, Aussie coal, Newcastle coal. Uh, we have the Brent. Brent uh, is pretty easy. One barrel of oil is 5.8 million BTU. 
So if you are at $10, you are talking about $58 per uh, barrel of, of oil. Uh, and right now, uh, you know, usually LNG has been traded to a slight discount to, to Brent. Right now, you are at $3, while Brent is closer to $10. So it's a big gap between the pricing of spot LNG and the Brent price. And actually, given the fact that coal plants are usually efficient at a level of around 40% thermal efficiency, while the thermal efficiency of most gas plants exceeds 50% uh, on an energy efficiency basis, uh, LNG prices are much cheaper than coal. Uh, and that, of course, explains the big shift in uh, consumption of coal, rather, natural gas rather than coal in Europe, where you, on top of this, have carbon price incentives. And then the last thing is events. Uh, we've got a lot of questions. I got an email today at 7.01 after we sent out the report, what about coronavirus? And uh, uh, it uh, seems to be the big question here. Uh, of course, we're not specialists on the coronavirus. We've looked at some research on this. Wood McKinsey had a pretty good report out where they estimate LNG demand in China to be affected between 2.6 to 6.3 million tons. Uh, China is expected to, you know, prior to the coronavirus, a couple of different estimates, but, you know, growth has been assumed to be between 7 to 10 million tons for 2020. So, you know, this impact is pretty big. Uh, Bloomberg has a different estimate. They assume gas demand will be growing around 7% in China this year. This is gas demand, so it's both pipeline and LNG, and they expect this to be reduced to somewhere between 4.7 to 5.6 percent because of the coronavirus. Um, what we do see, of course, in the real economy is that uh, LNG import was up quite a lot in China last week. Uh, import last week, according to Kepler, was 1.4 million tons. The week prior, it was only 0.5 million tons. So. Uh, volumes are definitely on the uptick, uh, and it's of course related to the fact that the lunar vacation was extended, and once people are a bit back, uh, volumes are starting to flow. Uh, we have also kind of put it on our perspective here. If you look on the, the right side graph, you see the expected LNG demand in China, and then we put in the Wood McKinsey's best case and the worst case, how that will impact uh, demand. Um, one other oddity about the coronavirus has been the disruptions at Chinese, you know, import terminals, and uh, this has resulted suddenly in a big jump in floating storage. So if you look at the floating storage, which I explained a bit earlier, we were up to around 32 ships at the peak in October. The Contango was uh, peaking in uh, the November contract. So once the November contract was settled, most people started to liquidate their uh, floating storage. But the last two weeks, this has spiked again. And we are now up to, last time I checked, 23 ships uh, in floating storage, where each, you know, these ships on average has been staying 17 days with cargo. So uh, for shipping, actually, it's been a bit supportive in the short term for those ships being uh, tied up. So uh, we'll then head into a bit more longer-term discussion. Uh, 
just look at the volumes. The volumes are continuing to grow month by month. January, we were looking at the 12 months rolling of 362 million tons. We expect volumes for 2020 to grow close to 25 million tons. The new nameplate capacity is around 20 million tons. Most of the terminals coming on stream in 2020 will start up pretty early in 2020, and then you will have uh, some of the 2019 plants running at full year effect in 2020, resulting in around 25 million tons uh, production growth uh, for 2020. And uh, if you look at those ships coming on uh, for delivery this year, which is uh, on 40 ships and the kind of expected sailing distance, uh, the market should be pretty tight also in 2020. Uh, when it comes to FIDs, FIDs, we had the highest level of sanctioning of new terminals in 2019, and we got to around 71 million tons of new volumes being sanctioned. It was this mega project started off with Golden Pass in February, which is a Qatari gas and Exxon project of around 15 million tons. We had ex uh, expansion of the Sabine Pass by around 4.5 million tons with the train fix. We had the Mozambique project going ahead at 13 million tons, the Calcius Pass at 10. Then the Russians surprised quite a lot of people by actually doing the FID in 2019 rather than 2020, adding another 20 million tons. And then lastly, just before New Year, Nigeria uh, did the FID on the train seven, adding close to 8 million tons altogether. So uh, pretty good year for sanctioning, uh, despite pretty weak market for near-term or spot market for LNG prices. We do expect more volumes to be sanctioned. Uh, the most likely in the near term is the wood fiber, which has been postponed. We expected our FID on this in 2019. It's only 2 million tons. Rovuma, which is the Mozambique or the big Mozambique project of 15 million tons, we do expect the FID soon. Uh, some of the EPC contracts have already been agreed. And then, of course, the big question is uh, when the Qataris will uh, go ahead and how big it will be, whether it will be four trains or six trains, as they have indicated, which would add close to 50 million tons in capacity. And with quite cheap feed gas, we do expect this project to come on stream, and whether it's FID, uh, when the FID will come, uh, we will have to have a look on. Uh, course, they have to agree SPA and LNG offtake on the volumes here, given the sheer size of the investment. We also have a lot of other projects, expansion of Pluto. We expect the uh, energy Costa Azul to go ahead, you know, which is on the west side of U.S., where you can avoid transiting through the Panama Canal, so they have a pretty good kind of transportation situation. Uh, there's still a lot of U.S. projects. Uh, on the table. Most projects actually on the wall are US-based, given the boom in shale oil, shale oil gas. Uh, Driftwood is one likely candidate. They are in India these days trying to uh, sort up the agreements with Petronet, which have indicated a 5 million ton contract, which would underpin the, the project. Port Arthur, which have had a lot of support from the, the Saudis. Uh, and then uh, Freeport uh, expansion is also 
likely. We also see a likelihood of the Papua New Guinea expansion. So altogether, you know, you have more than 100 million tons there in uh, fairly near-term sanctioning. And then there are a lot of other projects. And just recently, yesterday, you had the Black Amina uh, announcing a million ton with the EDF uh, contract. And we also seen Gunvor taking over the sale and marketing uh, strategy for the Commonwealth LNG uh, plant in the U.S. So uh, definitely room for more volumes there. And if you look at the demand, you know, there's a need for probably 120, 150 million tons near term to meet demand for LNG. And then, you know, how, what kind of price do you need to do those sanctioning? And it's, uh, we looked at a lot of studies, and it's not that hard to, do, to calculate this age either. But if you look at all the projects competing for sanctioning, uh, McKinsey counts close to 300 million tons of uh, projects on the table right now. Uh, and the kind of, if you're going to meet the supply gap by 2035, you need somewhere between 100, 150 million tons, and the average kind of cost uh, for these projects would be around $7 per BTU. So, of course, the main component is uh, feed gas. So in order to meet that, you need to have feed gas below $3. Uh, and Henry Hub now is, uh, for the foreseeable future, below $3 in the futures market. So most of the volumes are U.S.-based. And uh, with low interest rates, which means lower capex costs uh, or capital costs, uh, we are seeing calling fees at $2, maybe even below $2. And if you're adding gas at less than $3 and uh, tolling at $2 or even less, you are getting to FOB prices in the U.S. of $5. And then you at least have $2 for both shipping and regas. So, so it seems to be the area where uh, it's uh, you know, economically viable to sanction new projects with a $7 per million BTU gas price. And uh, if you look at more the the big numbers, Shell published their LNG Outlook 2020 report last week, which is a very good report. Energy demand, you know, most of these reports, if it's whether it's the World Energy Outlook, BP, or whatever, they tend to have, or the McKinsey report for that matter, they have a pretty similar view. Uh, energy demand will raise by around 1% per annum the next 20 years or so. Uh, and this is related to a couple of factors, population growth, economic growth, a lot of people ending up in the middle class who would like to have access to energy and electricity. We, already, we have 600 people in Africa, close to half of the continent, who still don't have access to electricity. Uh, so the main drivers for energy uh, is economic growth and, democracy, uh, and population growth. And uh, feedstocks that's going to be Grabbing market share here is gas and renewables. So 80% of the energy demand will be met by these two sources, which are very complementary since the renewables tend to be intermittent. Gas is something you can switch on quick uh, and easy uh, on short-term notice. Uh, so 43% of this energy will be gas, according to Shell. 37 renewables. Coal is in structural decline. Oil is soon at 
peak demand, uh, and this gives then our gas demand of uh, 2% increase annually for the next 20 years. Uh, LNG is becoming the main mode of transportation of uh, gas through uh, international trade, so uh, LNG imports are expected to grow 40%, while pipelines only 15%, and then the rest will be met by domestic production. So this means LNG expected to grow around 4% the next 20 years. Uh, I think we used the McKinsey number in our last presentation, and they were around 3.5%. So it's somewhere in this area. Uh, Asia is today around three quarters of the demand center. We shall and most other analysts uh, think this will uh, continue. So it's three quarters of uh, demand will be Asia-centered, but uh, what is, of course, I think also good for, for, for the energy market is it will be less dependent on China. So only about a quarter of this Asian LNG demand will be met by Chinese demand, another quarter by South Asia, and the rest of Asia is actually 50%. And the mature market, the JKT, which is the Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, is mature, and uh, we don't expect much growth there. Both Japan and Korea LNG growth last year was negative by around 7%, actually. So China had to make up for uh, their uh, decline. And then when it comes to the demand drivers, they are basically fourfold. It's about uh, supplementing pipeline gas. It's the decline of domestic sources, and then there's another driver, which I also will touch upon a bit later, which is the bunker market, where with these prices and with uh, more focus on environmental uh, issues, LNG is a, a very good fuel for ships. Uh, when it comes to regas, of course, if you are building LNG terminals, you also need to have regas capacities to put the gas into the pipeline. Uh, uh, and there we are seeing a, a big growth. Uh, 85 million tons expected growth in three key Asian markets the next five years, in being India, China, and Bangladesh. So uh, while LNG liquefaction capacity will grow to around 500 million tons by 2024, regasification capacity will grow to 950 million tons. And uh, you also have the option of utilizing SRUs, where there are a lot of these available in the market these days. Uh, then one of the themes we have been talking about is LNG as a commodity and a commodity story. And this is a graph we've spent uh, quite a lot of time on. We've presented it several times, so I'm not going to go into details there. Uh, but uh, it's about uh, you know, the tra transformation of the LNG space from being a boring utility space to becoming more a global commodity. Uh, and also driven by technology change with new ships being much more efficient. And large and efficient ships are the preferred ships for charters. So we also added our utilization overview. These are numbers I got from Poulton uh, yesterday, uh, showing the utilization they have assessed for the different uh, segments. So steam, not surprisingly, are the lowest at around 87%. Uh, the dual fuels are at 89 and then we are at 93% utilization of the new modern tonnage two-stroke uh, ships. Uh, when it comes to the fleet composition, also a graph we've shown before, this is basically taking the LNG one, two, three, 
putting in into different technologies. And we have today more than 200 steamships. We have close to 70 ships which are built before 2000, which are very inefficient and small. Uh, we have around 160, uh, 165 fuel fuel tri-fuels. Then you add another 44 Q-maxes and Q-flexes and uh, around 30 hybrid ships. These are hybrid ships, are steam ships with uh, improved efficiency, basically. And then you have the new latest generation ships, which is the Maggie and XDFs, where they are all together with all the book around 170 of these ships. Uh, four years ago, I read a very good article by Dr. Richard Pratt in uh, Fernlis, and he had made actually two articles uh, called LNG as a commodity. So this was, he was a bit ahead of his time and uh, assessed kind of the viability of LNG as a commodity uh, with the increased production of U.S. flexible volumes of LNG. Uh, and we kind of had a new look at those to assess, you know, what's changed the last couple of years. And, of course, the arrows are going more into the green. Uh, so the factors he's described in this article, uh, which I'm sure the currently brokers are happy to provide any investors uh, calling them, are the following. It's the, about the availability. You know, LNG has usually been, and you know, traditionally been sold on long-term contracts with utilities and hasn't been really available. And there's also been the clauses regarding destination flexibility. So, you know, even if it's a big trade of LNG, it's not really easy to get your hands on. So even with you know gold uh, being fairly scarce, if you pay somebody, you will get gold because it's still a commodity. This hasn't been the case with LNG. Uh, we also see the growth of portfolio contracts, where actually you as a customer could go to you know the big portfolio players, Shell, Total, or the trading houses, and you could tell them, I want to buy one million tons of LNG, and they can source it for you and provide it to you. So there's definitely been a big trend in LNG becoming more available, and especially with the glut of LNG, which is uh, you know, struggling to find homes in today's market. Then another factor of commodity is that supply demand determines price, and of course everybody having uh, you know economics degree, they understand this, but actually this hasn't been the case with with uh, with LNG because it's been contractual price linked to oil with destination flexibility is not being an option. So supply demand hasn't always been the determination of the prices. And we are seeing this to a much greater extent today uh, where supply is, uh, uh, is ample today and then prices are responding and going to very low levels. We also see this on the marginal cargo follows the money. It means that we have much more arbitrage today. We have, you know, if you have positive net tax between different markets, you are also, uh, uh, you know, you tend to send the cargo to the highest, highest price uh, market. So this has also been a big development. This wasn't how LNG market tended to, to work before. At where we are still uh, a bit in the, the yellow is on the transportation storage. Uh, side, uh, much harder to uh, store LNG than most commodities uh, because of the temperature. You are at uh, minus 162 degrees. You need to have 
specialized cargo tanks or uh, gas storage underground, which there is not, you know, endless capacity of. Uh, this is one of the drivers where Europe has been able to take in so much LNG is the fact that they have the most efficient storage capacity of LNG in the world. Uh, so uh, once you have uh, more efficient transportation and storage, then of course you can respond more to demand because if gas prices are in contango, you can just buy storage place. And this is what's happening with chips recently becoming storage places for LNG where people are playing contango. Then we are also in the yellow when it comes to global prices. We are definitely moving in the green direction, but there are still be LNG is still a regional price product. So in Asia, usually it's uh, JKM, in Europe more GTF and the G uh, national balancing points, which are more gas markets, and then uh, the Henry Hub in the US. So still I have a, far, uh, a bit way to go on the global prices and like oil, which is more our global price in that regard. Derivative markets, we've seen an explosion. Derivative markets uh, uh, have uh, developed very quickly, and uh, last time I checked, this, you know, growth there was tenfold in, in less than two years. So it's, today it's very easy to hedge cargoes, uh, and you can also uh, start hedging uh, your freight through uh, derivatives like the Spark which was recently introduced. And then we have, again, one in the yellow, which is the transaction cost. Transaction costs here are uh, a bit more than in, in most other commodity sectors, which makes it a bit easier to, 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 to transact with other people. Last item is the marginal projection is non-discretionary, which is a bit uh, hard to explain, but it means that uh, once you put in uh, production, you usually produce whatever you can produce. Uh, and we have seen recently some shutting of US volumes. Uh, whether the volumes will be hitting the market, we don't know yet. There are people who have uh, uh, used their option to, 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 to terminate the volumes, but uh, it could very well be that the, 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 the volumes will be hitting the market. But we're not really there yet that um, everybody who has the LNG plant will be producing whatever they can, which is more, more or less the case with the uh, offshore oil field. So uh, if we look at kind of the commodity story, we are seeing a greater degree of commoditization, uh, especially given the fact that there are a lot of LNG offtake agreements that are up for renegotiation. And we see a less willingness of buyers to agree to oil price index, and then you are starting to uh, create a separate price for gas, and this is what has been happening in the European gas market. So, uh, in 2018, only 24% of the European gas market was oil-linked, uh, while it was 78% in 2005. So, we've definitely seen this in the European gas market, and with this big blue box here with contracts for expiry, we do expect that the market will become more flexible as we are moving forward in time. Okay, then we will head into sustainability. Um, IMO have put in certain requirements when it comes to uh, emission. So we have this good graph from DNVGL, 
which illustrates the ambition. Uh, 2008 is the base case, and for shipping this is uh, pretty, you know, convenient given the fact that uh, emissions was pretty high in that year. It was a pretty good year for shipping, uh, and people were running their ships pretty quick. Uh, so we have had uh, 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 an ambition here to reduce the intensity by 40 percent by 2030, and we have made progress when it comes to emissions. And this is mostly related to slow speeding of ships. Uh, the ambition will be at 50% reduction in 2050, but the hard part here will be the intensity reduction of 70%, and then the ambition is to go to zero emissions by 20, uh, 2100. Um, so uh, how are we going to meet those targets? And uh, DNV have the, you know, the four main drivers here. It's about the logistics and digitalization, and this is something Lars will talk a bit about later. It's about hydrodynamics, making the hull more efficient. It's about the machinery, and of course this is related to our machinery. Uh, our two-stroke engine is uh, typically uh, thermal efficient at around 50%, which is more or less the same as the average gas plant on shore, uh, while a steam engine is typically efficient at around 35%. So, of course, there's been made big progress in the LNG industry when it comes to efficiency of propulsion. And then it's about fuel. So what fuel are you putting in the tank to run the ship? And, of course, here we have a lot of different options. It's LNG, which gives a reduction of around 20%. It's about hydrogen battery package for peak consumption biofuel. Uh, so if we look at... Uh, overview that DNV has. They have assessed all the different options, so a lot of different options. Uh, and if you look at them, which one are the best? And uh, the clear conclusion is today, given, you know, technological feasibility, it's LNG that is the one that meets most of the requirements. The only kind of uh, uh, orange box is here, G greenhouse gas emissions, where we still are not able to meet uh, ambitious IMO 2020 uh, ambitions. However, we are making progress by switching to LNG. And uh, then if you look at kind of the different you know, technical maturity and commercial, I think the main uh, issue uh, facing ship owners uh, who are to order ships is uh, the infrastructure. So, um, so far, most of the ships who have switched to LNG propulsion then cruise ships, which have a pretty uh, predictable route, uh, which are also running at very quick speed, which means a lot of consumption. They are also running a lot into the ECA areas where there are emission targets. Uh, and then it's the big container ships, which are also very fuel thirsty and has a predictable route. But the infrastructure, there is happening a lot with a lot of bunkering activity. So we do expect the kind of the, the blue point here showing the maturity to head more into green territory. And uh, one kind of illustrative example here is uh, CM, uh, a CGM's recent container order. They ordered 22 new container ships, and they were asked by Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, why they opted for LNG. Uh, and, uh, you know, what they said is, you know, if you're going to fit it with battery, it would take up 146% of the cargo space if they opted for hydrogen, which isn't really an alternative today, uh, you would need six times the space and four times the weight 
of the current fuel storage. It would cut the capacity by more than a third. So these options aren't really viable today. We can't stop ordering ships. Uh, ship orders are at 15-year low. Uh, and if we want to make progress on the emission targets, we, we do have to use the option which is available. And the option that is available is LNG. Uh, and, and that's also the conclusion. So when we're looking at the bunker demand going forward, what will be the composition? And this is actually the most pessimistic scenario for LNG. At this uh, scenario, we are only at 40% market share for LNG in 2015. But they have three scenarios, and they range from 40 to 80% market share for LNG by 2050. So uh, with the big price spread between LNG and uh, oil products, it is uh, uh, the roadmap going forward that we expect LNG to become much more uh, uh, much more dominant in the, in the ship propulsion system, and of course this will also drive demand growth for LNG, as illustrated earlier. Uh, and then, of course, typically when you talk about LNG, there's one thing everybody tends to mention, and that's the methane slip. Uh, and there's a lot of confusion here. It's about you know. What kind of perspective are you using on emission? So if we first, if we look at the methane compared to CO2, methane has a much shorter half-life, only 12 years. So if you miss methane, which you are doing mostly on all farms as well, you will have that methane in the atmosphere. Uh, the half-life is 12 years, and then it will taper off quite rapidly. If you are emitting CO2, it will stay in the atmosphere for century because it has a much longer half-life uh, and the half-life depends. So that's why I put in the, the, the number here. So, so what you have to then take in mind when you're trying to cut consumption, if you are running on fuel oil, emitting more CO2, you will have those emissions in the atmosphere for a long time. Uh, if you're switching to LNG, you might have some methane slip, uh, which will have an impact in the short term, but much better in the long term. So kind of the net effect there is illustrated in the red. So if we want to make any progress, uh, LNG is the way forward. And actually, the methane slip on our mega ships is less than 90% you know, lower than on the dual fuel engine, the four-stroke dual fuel engine. And this is something also Lars will talk a bit about. So. Uh, some of the test results there are related to uh, studies on older LNG propulsion systems, not the newest type. So the newest type tend to have a lot less methane slip than the older type of, of LNG engine. And if you're looking at the methane budget, so uh, these are the emissions uh, yearly. So what are the sources? Fossil fuels at around 100. Uh, we have agriculture being the biggest factor. Uh, together with the wasteland. Then we, of course, have some absorption of the methane in the atmosphere, so the net effect there is around 10. So what about those emissions? Actually, 40% of them are profitable to reduce. Uh, the remaining 60% needs to be incentivized. And actually, these are on the top of the agenda for the biggest oil companies. So a collective of the 13 biggest majors have got together and founded 
the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, where they have put in very strict targets for reducing of the methane emissions, where they have an ambition to reduce the total methane emissions in the full value change down to 0.25% by 2025. Uh, they also have an ambition of zero root inflaring by 2030. And they have put money behind those words. Each of these 13 members have put $100 million into a fund uh, to support these initiatives. And uh, one of the people presenting for these guys are Torleif Madsen, who will be uh, presenting a bit later here today. Uh, and uh, also keep in mind, the methane emissions is not just a natural gas uh, topic. It's also related to coal. And of course, as you know, coal has a lot of other dirty uh, emissions. So uh, CO2 reductions is only 50%, but if you look at uh, the particle matter, which is uh, unhealthy uh, fibers who can you know, really have a detrimental effect on your health, reduction of these are close to 100%. Sulfur is 100%. Uh, nah, nah, sulfur is close to 100%, and mercury also 100%. So these are the drivers for, for acid rain. Uh, and then lastly, before finishing off there, of course, uh, this is related to, to local climate as well. Uh, if you are reducing these uh, nasty uh, emissions, you will also improving the, the, the local climate. And uh, this is one of the big drivers for the shift from coal to natural gas in China, where they have made significant progress on, uh, on local air pollution, while India is really struggling with this. And 14 of the 15 most polluted cities in the world are in India. So we, let's hope that uh, Trump is uh, able to make a deal with uh, Modi and uh, getting some more US LNG to India because they definitely need it. Uh, also, last thing to mention here, ESG. We started reporting ESG in uh, last year. We published our 2018 ESG report. We are expected to release our new report in April. So here we have implemented the Sustainability Accounting Standard Board uh, Guidelines, uh, where we are providing a lot of data about uh, emissions, uh, health, safety, etc., which uh, will provide you with a valuable guideline to also assess less uh, uh, financial uh, numbers about flex LND, but also taking into account these uh, key uh, matters. So that's it uh, on time. Uh, Summary, uh, we have delivered our best results ever, 52 million in line with our guidance, our earnings per share of 44 cents. Uh, we have uh, going from a strong rate market in uh, Q4 to a market affected by a combination of glut of LNG, a warm winter, and then the coronavirus outbreak. So despite this, we have been able to book Q1 at uh, healthy numbers. $70,000 anticipated TCE, well ahead of our cashback even, which is slightly less than $50,000. We do think Q2 could be a bit challenging. However, we have three or four six ships already fully covered for the quarter. Uh, but we expect stronger market in 2020 as gas prices is expected to recover. We have a very strong financial position. Uh, all the equity, 840 million, already paid in. 
and uh, we raised 1.3 billion of, of debt financing with long-term maturities last year. We have 130 million dollars in cash and very limited remaining capex. We have 13 ships under construction, all the new types, uh, six underwater, seven for delivery over the next year or so. And uh, keep in mind, LNG is a long game here with uh, only hydrocarbon with any substantial growth over the next 20 years. So that's it. I think we will start with uh, Q&A for the people in the audience, and then we could uh, move over to uh, the telephone in case we have more time for those questions. Uh, let's see. Can make this work? So, any questions? All clear? Good, we have a lot of Americans on the phone. They tend to have more questions. <laughs> okay, we have one there from Jan. Maybe you could uh, hand him a uh, microphone. So, we yeah, I think it's working. Yeah. Yeah, it's working. Ah, okay, good. Yeah. So, just one question on the on the your average time charter rate for 2019. What what, what was it? Uh, uh, it's on average for the year. It's around 65 achieved both. The headline rate is of course much higher, but uh, that you have to take the headline rate and then the utilization. If we had 100% utilization, I think we would have made based on the spot market maybe around 85,000. I think was the average headline rate for 2019. Thank you. That's, of course, for the modern Thomas. You wouldn't get that on a steamship. <laughs> yeah, we have Petter here from uh, Kepler. Yes, hello. Um, a quick question on the floating storage situation now. Um, it's, it's increasing, and, and I suppose that's, well, to my experience, the first time we've seen this, uh, this uh, increase this early in the year. So uh, first question is uh, how does this uh, continue from here? And I do understand you need to make some assumptions. Then. Yeah. But, uh, the second question is um, uh, um, when you talk about your real real uh, uh, vessels coming yeah. on stream, um, you are intending to have them on long-term charters. Um, wouldn't they be better uh, in the spot market if uh, floating storage is, is a play going forward? Okay, so we start with the floating storage. Of course, something we follow from day to day just to have a look at the build-up. Uh, of course, this is not what I would call voluntarily floating storage where you are paying a contango as the gas market is in backwardation. So it's more related to uh, disruption at the import terminals. Uh, that's why we were a bit you know, cautious on the guidance because we have ships in the spot market who are uh, discharging and... Uh, you know, if you have too much delays, you could miss a delay camp for the, the next voyage, uh, affecting your earnings ability. Um, unless you are on a very high rate and are stranded in floating storage, then it, of course, would be a benefit. So it's hard to say. Um, uh, I think the numbers will go down. Uh, they are spiking now. It's just related to disruptions. Uh, we see imports in China picking up, as I mentioned last uh, week. Uh, the numbers I saw was 1.4 million tons last week in imports compared to 0.5 million tons the, the week prior. Of course, if you're only importing 0.5 million tons of LNG to China in one week, then of course there is a lot of delayed discharge. 
So I, I think this is a, a, a blip. Uh, this will be heading down again once uh, things are starting to resume. Uh, but uh, at least it's keeping some ships on out, out of the business and you know, vessel availability you know, is less than you, know, you would imagine because of the, the floating storage. Um, then the next question I think was with uh, the relic ships and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think the ships offer some added value in the market, especially now when you have uh, floating storage becoming more a common theme, especially when you have peak seasons and contango. Uh, so yes, of course, they would be good in the spot market for that purpose, but I think also it would be very good for a portfolio player or a trader who uh, have portfolio contracts or are playing in the market to have access to such a ship because then they are sure they get hold of the ship, they can utilize the ship for that purpose. Uh, and it might then not be that surprising that it was a trading house taking a first full relic ship uh, once she is delivered from, from yard. So I think those ships are, uh, I would say, more suitable for traders or portfolio players uh, than know, we're doing that trade ourselves, but, uh, you know, we're happy to trade them in the spot market as well. Okay. Any more questions? No. Okay. Then I think we check with the operator whether we have some uh, questions by the conference call. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press start on one on your telephone. And we do have a question, and the question comes from Greg Lewis, BTIG. Please go ahead. Yes, thank, thank you, and good afternoon. Um, Oyston you know, clearly Flex has done a good job of, of you know, taking delivery of its vessels, has some, some vessels still on the water. But, but as I think about you know, where Flex is going to be bigger picture, and I'm sure you know this better than me, but it, it seems like maybe anywhere from 30 to 40 percent of, of the LNG order book is, is uncontracted and, and maybe in the hands of some speculators. As you think about flex over the next 12 to 18 months, do you see opportunities for you guys to actually go out and, and, and build this fleet out to, to something of, of a little bit more critical size? Just curious if you could provide any comments around that. Yeah, I think, uh, thanks, Greg, and uh, good to have you on the call here. I, I realize it's a bit far from you traveling to, to Oslo today. Um, uh, when it comes to critical sites, I think we already have it. You know, we have $2.5 billion invested in ships. Uh, that third in ships gives us, I would say, the critical site. Given where our ship stock price is trading today, uh, last time I checked, and I actually bought some at 60 corners, uh, we are trading implicit $150 million per ship. If we're going to go to yards, we we'll probably have to pay 190 And then, as I explained in this kind of brief return analysis, you are tying up equity then in ships, you know, typically 40%, 30 40% of the filling price for, you know, 26 to 30 months, which is the lead time for LNG ships. So if you add the kind of the cost of that equity and the cost of equity, they say yes, are pretty high you know, at least go, go get to $200 million. So given, you know, where we are pricing, it's, it's not really an option for us to, to, to grow. Uh, uh, and we don't need to grow either. Uh, we have the size we, we need. 
so uh, we rather focus on getting charters for our new build. We have very good new build in 2020, uh, three full ships, but one is already taken. So if you're listening in from oil company today, you're only two left of those. Um, and then uh, we have two XDFs, which are one of the first XDFs, which is uncommitted. So two of those, maybe three of those in 2020. Uh, so we focus on getting contracts for those. We prefer having a mix of more long-term contracts. We've been fairly successful in achieving seven years of more backlog the last couple of months, but we would like to have more. Uh, so, so that's the main focus. Uh, you know, main focus for 2020, number one, two, three, taking delivery ships, getting contracts on them, putting in place the remaining financing for the two last ships, uh, running the ships well, and uh, rather returning uh, uh, equity to, to shareholders through dividends and hopefully higher than 10 cents uh, once we have a bit better view of the market and the financial markets are a bit more stable. Great. And, and then always from just one more on, 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 the, on shareholder returns. I mean, clearly you guys have shown you're committed to the dividend. Yeah, there's some uncertainty out there, but, but, but how, how are you thinking about, you know, share buybacks? You mentioned you mentioned the cost per vessel versus, you know, what those vessels would, would be, you know, from a new, from a, from the shipyard, just kind of any kind of, any kind of view on that and, and, and what maybe in, in different ways beyond the dividend, um, you know, just thinking about where, where the broader markets are and, and, you know, sometimes in shipping we see, you know, a somewhat healthy market um, where maybe the, the broader stock market isn't as healthy. Oh, I think, of course, we had a long discussions about the dividend, and I think, you know, in in a bit more uh, conductive market, uh, you know, the payout ratio will uh, from a kind of JF shipping company would tend to be a bit higher than what we are paying in Q4 with uh, these kind of numbers, and uh, and also the fact we have plenty of cash in in the bank. But uh, right now, the, the kind of the, the physical market is a bit in disruptions, a bit unclear. We think it will recover. Uh, how quick it is is harder the question. And then uh, you have the financial markets, and especially for energy and shipping stocks, they are really in turmoil, and people are uh, not having a good time uh, being shipping investors. So rather than, than paying out dividends, uh, you know, fat dividends, we are preserving some cash and uh, hope we, we have the trust of shareholders that uh, once things settle down, we can rather... Uh, evaluate the dividend levels uh, again. Um, uh, buybacks, something we also, of course, discussed when we are getting to $150 million implicit pricing per ship. Uh, we have, rather than spending the, 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 the company's money on, on buying back the share, shares, we are paying, maintaining the dividends. You can, of course, reinvest the dividend in new shares or, or buy other shares. Uh, we think... Uh, it's better for us to just preserve some cash right now. Uh, but, you know, it's something we will assess from time to time. And, uh, you know, of course, at 150, it, uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty low, low levels compared to, to buying new ships these days. Exactly. All right, well, hey, thank you very much for the time. Have a great day. Okay, thanks, Greg. Thank you. There are no further questions on the phone lines at this time. Please continue. Okay, thanks. Um, then I think we do our 
15 minutes coffee break. Um, and uh, then we give the floor to Lars, who will talk a bit more about uh, technology perspectives, how we are progressing with our in-house ship management. He will also touch upon the things on everybody's lips, which is the methane slip and uh, yeah, some other you know stuff, engineering stuff, which he loves, I guess. Uh, uh, and then uh, we, we we finish up with uh, tool life talking about the carbon capture and. Uh, I hope you stick around uh, and uh, are patient uh, for 15 minutes because we are returning uh, then. Okay.
Okay, everybody. Then we are back, and uh, we are now going into the more uh, deep aspects of uh, gas and carbon capture. We start off with uh, Lars Pedersen, uh, MD of uh, Flex LNG Management, who will give us some perspectives on the technology side and how to run a LNG ship. Okay. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Oystein. Uh, so, uh, in order to uh, transport all this uh, LNG coming uh, online and generate revenue, we need to keep the propeller turning of the vessels. So, uh, I'd like to give you an idea of how we make that happen in uh, Flex LNG and in the group of uh, JF shipping companies. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> We are benefited uh, from being a large uh, shipping, shipping, what can I say, company group uh, with uh, presence in different segments. We do uh, uh, do uh, deep sea shipping uh, under the JAF uh, controlled deep sea companies of uh, six companies. So we do. Uh, technical management of the ships uh, on behalf of uh, Sea Tankers, which is uh, John's private company. We do uh, Golden Ocean, which is uh, drug cargo ships. We do uh, ship finance, which is a combination of different uh, ships, but also bricks, but we are though only involved in the shipping part. We have Frontline, which is primarily crude transportation. We do have Flex LNG, which we are here to present today. And then we have advanced gas, which is uh, BLTCs, which is LPT transportation. So on our technical platform, we this year operate 238 ships. So in order to be able to handle so many ships, you need some structure. Uh, and uh, you need to find a way of where you can do uh, and utilize the economy of scale, taking advantage of the volume of uh, what we have available. So we have done some uh, structural matters where we do have shared functions, which we have described up here. It's where we utilize uh, the volume through, for example, uh, procurement and contracting. We do uh, also consolidate uh, vetting. And for vetting, for those of you who don't know, Everything is a ticket to trade by oil majors. So oil majors and gas majors, they go on board our ships, they check the condition, and they basically give you a tick, yes or no. So we consolidate that uh, in, uh, in a large scale, and we are able to then uh, see trends, whatever that's happening in the industry, and then take actions and direction thereafter. Obviously, when we operate 200-plus ships, we spend a lot of money also. So we need good systems in place to have control of uh, our spending, but also making sure that our budgets are very, very sharp. <clears throat> we have a lot of data available, so uh, we are able to do a lot of analytics of, of data on, on different matters in, in ship operation. And last but not least, people. People uh, make the difference. And we have to make sure that we have the best people because in the end of the day, these are the ones which are facing the customer front line. You also need to have good processes 
and procedures in place. We then uh, go into the more segment-specific activities. So we have uh, different boxes uh, covering that. We have a box which are handling new building and projects. This is where we consolidate the group new building activities in different shipyards and also right to fit projects uh, on fleet-wide uh, basis. On uh, the new building side, we are having an office here in uh, Oslo uh, as well as in Shanghai. Uh, and then we are present uh, at different uh, shipyards physically where, we, uh, where the ships are being constructed and where we have specific teams looking after that uh, the ships are being built and delivered according to the shipbuilding contracts. Uh, in Singapore, we, dry, we run our dry bulk uh, operation from, uh, but we also have a time zone back up from in here in Norway. In Norway, primarily we do uh, the tango operation, but also a time zone difference, uh, oh, sorry, time zone back up from Singapore. <clears throat> I will come more into details of flex LND fleet management, what we are doing here. But we are a team sitting here in Norway as well as in Scotland. And then the second, and the, oh, sorry, the last leg of the segment is uh, our second, what can I say, in house ship manager, which is uh, named the uh, C Team. It is specialized in tanker and dry bulk uh, operation, and they sit in Singapore. And all these activities are uh, coordinated uh, through my function. So uh, if we go into the LNG-specific uh, vessels, you have already seen the slide. Uh, Oystein presented the same. But uh, it gives a good uh, view of how the, uh, how the composition of the fleet is. Uh, so we have the latest technology of LNG vessels, they are all uh, highly efficient in what is named boil-off in, in, uh, in uh, LNG, but it's also the most fuel-efficient ships which are available, which, again, links into <coughs> that this is uh, creating the lowest rate unit cost that you are able to get in the market. We have six ships on the water uh, and seven under construction, and they all have a slightly different in that technology, uh, and uh, uh, some have high pressure uh, uh, propulsion systems, which is a 300 bar uh, fuel injection, and some have the low pressure. And uh, you can say this, the ship's operation are more or less uh, the same, uh, the fuel efficient are more or less the same. But some charters, they like more high pressure some charters like more low pressure. So we have a variety of actually charters can pick uh, if they are available. Uh, back to our new building activities in the group is uh, quite substantial. Uh, so uh, since uh, 2004, we have uh, overseen more than 300 vessels being constructed at different yards uh, worldwide, but most in China as well as in Korea. At the moment, we are handling uh, 31 ships under construction, including the LNG vessels which are being constructed at DSME 
as well as HHI. Through uh, consolidating all the new building activities, we are able also to uh, make very good uh, uh, deals on, on, the, on, on the commercial terms, but certainly also on the technical spec, because we have a very close relation to the shipyards, and we are able to understand what we should have included in the spec and what is cost drivers to come afterwards. So it's a very valuable having this opportunity to have it in-house. So uh, in 2018, in the, in, in the late, yeah, late 18, it was decided that we should bring uh, in uh, LNG in-house uh, and um, various discussions around why we should do it. But basically, there's three things that are the drivers for bringing it inside. It is that LNG is complex. And when you say that LNG is complex, why is LNG complex? First of all, it's liquid. It's uh, minus 162 Celsius. And it's very uh, explosive if you don't treat it in the right way. So in order to be able to handle LNG, it is not a commodity, technically. Uh, it, it requires that you have very sophisticated uh, equipment. You need to have highly skilled and competent people to operate the equipment. And uh, that goes also that you need competent people in the office to guide the people in the right direction on board and support when needed. It's very expensive assets. Einstein explained it was 190 average per ship. So obviously with our investment, it's a lot of money, so we need to make sure that the assets are taken well care of. And then, uh, not at least, that if you want to make yourself available to a long-term charter long uh, business, it is expected by the oil majors that you do take a larger part of the value chain in ship management and actually do in-house ship management. So this is why we are doing this, or have done this. Uh, so. Uh, <coughs> In 2000, early 2019, we sat down and started to work out how are we going to do this. We built a roadmap and got uh, support from DNV GL uh, and worked out a very detailed management of change process, which was divided into different work streams. And uh, by October last year, we got our ticket to trade, we got our certificate to uh, operate ships, which was uh, Obviously, a very happy day, but it was also a uh, complex, uh, complex uh, roadmap to get there. Because one thing is that uh, we had an idea and good, uh, good view on how is the best way of doing ship management. You need to have a sign-off by the oil majors, and the oil majors uh, are very stri strict on on um, looking after that you are operating ships in a way that they like. So you need to understand their needs in order to service their needs. So ship management in a nutshell for us is about people. It's about making sure that every seafarer that uh, serve on board our ships will be turned safely 
like they safely join on board. It's about making sure you don't make any harm to the environment and you don't have any spills to see. We want to stay lean, we want to stay efficient, we want to stay focused and not make it too complicated, always with the simplicity mindset. Uh, we need to build credibility with charters, investors and financiers. It really doesn't mean anything that if we believe we have a good product, if, if nobody likes it. And uh, the only way that we are able to create that is by delivering. It's by delivering cost-efficient solutions. It's about making sure that the cargo is delivered on time. It's about making sure that the uh, propeller keeps turning. And obviously, take economy of scales out of where it's possible. Then the train is, uh, is moving very fast on the technology side, digital uh, particular, and we had to make sure that we are in parking on that platform as well. So we are trying to build an operation uh, to have very good control of how we are consuming fuel and how can we make sure that we deliver the best uh, uh, freight unit cost as possible. We build a culture on board our ships, but also in the organization about every drop counts. And then the tools in the toolbox to monitor this better is an uh, off-the-shelf cloud-based technology that we are embarking on. I will come back to that in a short while. So the roadmap of what has happened uh, since we got the document of compliance is that last year we have uh, transferred uh, the first vessel, Flex Enterprise. Then uh, this year has been uh, followed by three other vessels. And um, by end of Q2, we expect to have the last two vessels on the water transferred. And then uh, the new ships, which are starting to flow in, uh, from uh, May will flow directly into this uh, setup. Uh, so uh, I mentioned previously that the oil meters are, and gas meters are very, very strict uh, in how you do ship management and tanker operation. So we have had several road shows with these uh, up here on the, on the board, meaning Chevron, Shell, BP, Total, Inel, and also Gunmore. Uh, about understanding what are the expectations to us. What does it take to put cargo on board our ships? Because uh, about ticket to trade, if you remember, I said waiting is ticket to trade. Uh, in order for an oil major to, uh, to uh, load cargo on your ship, you need to have an inspection of the ship, and you have to have a approval, so to say. But uh, a lot of oil majors or gas majors uh, so, uh, sorry, uh, are not able to do, to do this without uh, having cargo uh, in the ship. And in order to have cargo in the ship, you need to have an approved, so to say, vetting, uh, vetting report. Uh, so uh, and uh, uh, 
it becomes uh, a quite a difficult situation because you can't get cargo before you have an approval, and you can't get an approval before you have cargo on board. So it actually means that, uh, in principle, you can't make it work. So you need to you need to find a way of how can you convince that the oil majors should uh, should uh, fill 174k uh, of LNG uh, into our vessels and we carry the cargo very safely. That has been uh, a very tricky part. It, it, it looks on paper relatively simple, but it's very complex. And that's why you need to have a very detailed management of change in place where you can document every single uh, dot that you do. But uh, uh, we are getting there. So four has been shifted already. And again, uh, the two last ones will be uh, by end of um, Q2. So, uh, uh, so how do we uh, how do we make sure that we put uh, people and safety in focus? In order to have safe ships, we believe uh, it all relies on uh, competent and empowered crew. And our crew is an integrated part of our strategy. We have developed a number or set of uh, values which are helping us in how we should conduct and behave ourselves, and they are future-driven. It's about leadership, it's about empowering people, and it's about being exceptional. And uh, the sharp eye will see that they spell flex. Uh, and um, we have had uh, several um, conferences with our seafarers, which are trading or uh, which are serving on board our ships, and um, to, to find out what is uh, important for them? We have had uh, meetings with uh, a different part of the organization, and uh, after a two days workshop, we landed on the, these values. So, uh, up back to uh, digital and uh, tools and the toolbox. Um, in order to be able both to handle a large number of uh, data and numbers which are coming in for when you operate uh, close to 240 ships, uh, you, need, you need good systems, you need good uh, tools in order to take better decisions and have control of, of your operation. So basically we uh, sat down um, one year ago and started to define what is important for Flex LNG fleet management, as well as the rest of the uh, companies which are subscribing to our technical platform, what do we need? So we uh, uh, defined four different areas which was uh, important to focus on, uh, on a digital platform, and we put that out uh, in an open tender process and had some very tough uh, rounds. But after six, uh, six months, we landed on the platform uh, uh, named Veracity by DNVGL, and we have now started to uh, get this uh, platform up and running. So it's about three main things. It's about getting better operational insight uh, through analytics. It's about making sure that you handle and are able to do better and smarter research on data management. And then, obviously, the technology should be 
future proof. So it's a, basically a maritime ecosystem which is hosted by, by Racity, by DNV Gel. It's very off-the-shelf solution, of course, with our trick, but the technology is developed, and uh, we have had a very aggressive uh, timeline with uh, uh, DNV Gel. And today, actually, we had the first milestone, which was our 45-day milestone of uh, having uh, the first uh, dashboards and and tools uh, presented. And after another 45 days, the platform is up and running, so it's extremely aggressive. So uh, basically, it's about uh, different dashboards that get yeah, uh, different data available to do better analytics, to take better decisions. And for our uh, way of uh, doing ship management, we have seven strategic objectives that are monitoring the technical uh, efficiency and operation of our ships. So it's about cost, it's about fuel efficiency, vessel performance, it's about people, sea and shore, it's about HSCQ, uh, where we measure safety and quality matters, it's about vetting, performance, meaning ticket to trade, it's about technical performance when we have any if we have any technical uh, deviations to, to our, what can I say, our, our maintenance uh, systems. And last but not least is also how are we able to measure customer satisfaction. So these uh, are our seven uh, strategic objectives and they are supported by KPIs where we actually lively can see uh, how we are performing. I think uh, we'll then move on to uh, fuel efficiency and or fuel consumption. Oystein have already mentioned part of it during his presentation. But if you look at the graph on the right-hand side and then uh, think about all vessels are, or have the ability to carry the same amount of cargo, meaning 170K cubic meters, which is the size of our ships. And then you compare to the different types of uh, propulsion systems which are available in the system. Uh, you have the old and first technology of steamships. You will see that per day to move cargo with 19.5 knots, which is a charter speed, not necessarily what this ship is trading, but is part of the time charter party, but it should be able to trade. It will consume around 230 tons of fuel per day. While on our Mickey latest four-stroke design, you trade around 90 tons of fuel. So it's a massive change in, uh, in the environment. Uh, while it is so important to understand uh, that the technology that we have in our ships is a huge difference uh, and uh, by not having um, steamships. So not only the size of the, of the steamships are, 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 are troublesome, but for sure the fuel consumption. So of course it's about freight unit cost. If you are able to deliver lower cost uh, cargo, you make more money. 
so simple as that. And then you had the uh, dual fuel uh, um, in the middle, which is um, the generation before the two-stroke design. We saw the ship started to, uh, or technology, flowing in in 2008, 9, 10. Uh, so today, they are also more or less uh, uh, non-attractive in the market. Uh, they are being utilized for SSRU uh, operation or FSU uh, or FSU operation, but for trading is very, very uh, uncompetitive, as you can see on fuel. And then back to, uh, to uh, it has also been shared earlier about methane uh, slip. So, so what is methane slip? I mean, there's a lot of talk about methane slip. And uh, methane slip is basically the, uh, the, less, the, the amount of uh, fuel which are not able to be, to be burned in the consumption. So it's the rest, it's a rest product of the combustion of the, uh, of, of the different designs. So in steam, uh, you could see very first the technology take everything. Also, leaving nothing left. Very thirsty. For the dual fuel, the four stroke, this was technology of uh, number two of 2.0, still very, uh, very thirsty uh, on, uh, on uh, methane slip also, apart from fuel consumption. The technology with four stroke simply is not so efficient as the technology that you see on the next generation of, uh, of uh, <coughs> of uh, two-stroke engines. So the two-stroke engines, you have two different uh, kinds. You have the virtual con concept and you have the make it design. The make it design is a bit more efficient on methane slip, but the fuel consumption for both engines are more or less the same. That's not so much difference. Uh, because for running the make engines or make it design, you need to operate big compressors and to operate big compressors, you need fuel. While on the virtual air design, they don't have the need to uh, operate big compressors, but they are a bit more thirsty. But when you compare the two designs, they're more or less the same. I think the takeaway from methane slip, yes, you have a rest product, but it's much, much less than it was than when you were consuming much more fuel. So it's a move in the right direction. There is a way to go to utilize this loss or this slip. And the Indian makers are working hard on, on, on improving. So basically, uh, if we should uh, sum, sum up on how we are doing uh, ship operation, operation in Flex LND or Flex LND fleet management uh, is uh, about that we are committed to responsible and, and transparent operation. We build uh, our, our vision and our way of operating ship on long-term uh, uh, approach and uh, are committed to make sure that we take good care of our people and the environment as well as governance. 
we have applied ESG to the way that we operate uh, our vessels, and these are transparent, available through reporting. And we look proactively to see how can we improve going forward, both through data, but also through different kinds of technology to increase our efficiency in uh, handling fuel. So uh, I think this is what I wanted to share. Okay, thanks a lot. And then we will head into <coughs> the last section, which is actually getting rid of uh, all the carbon, or at least most of it, uh, not only the CH4. Uh, and for that, we have one of the leading experts in this field, uh, Torleif Madsen, which I've already introduced. And uh, I guess you can introduce yourself a bit as well. Thanks. Yes, thank you, Einstein, for this uh, invitation to come here and talk to you. And uh, congratulations on your results today. <clears throat> I'm the CEO of Compact Carbon Capture, and we are a company uh, which are revolution, uh, revolutioning the CO2 capture technology. Uh, based on the, the dialogue and the, the presentation here today, I will do some clarifications uh, before I start. So you have a couple of ways to remove the carbon. You have the pre-combustion, which is, which Einstein mentioned, um, removing the carbon from methane, creating hydrogen before you burn off the energy. And then you have post-combustion, which is basically taking out the CO2 from the exhaust or the flue gas. Uh, in this presentation, I will mainly focus on post-combustion. The 3C technology is a post-combustion technology, but we have several patents also taken out on pre-combustion. We have, amongst others, recently taken out a patent where we even could introduce methane to gas turbines and we have a reforming process prior to burning off the methane. So we're taking out the carbon, burning dirty hydrogen uh, for reducing the temperature in the burner, also preventing NOx emissions. Uh, so there's a lot of things going on. The key takeaway, I think, from this presentation will be for you to know that there's going disruption into CO2 capture. The, the conventional technology was invented in the 1930s, and there's been um, very little disruption because the market is still under development. So now when the market is taking off with the Q45 in the US, the carbon quota prices in Europe is rising. So uh, my guess is we will see a lot of disruptive technologies in the near future, and please take this technology is one of them. I will first describe a couple of ways of avoiding CO2, removing CO2 or reducing CO2 emissions. I will point out why I believe that gas is one of them, and then I will give you a glance of the 3C technology. First, I will give you kind of a brief overview of why this is important. We emit about 36 billion tons of CO2 per year uh, from human sources, and to put it in perspective, if we were to make carbon out of all this CO2, every person on the world, in the world, 7.7 .7 billion persons would get their own carbon racing bike every other day. This is the amount of CO2 we're emitting, and approximately one-third is from energy. So even though we go all renewables, 
there still will be about 20 billion tons of emissions left each year. A lot from transport, 10, 12, 14%. Process industry, about 20, 25%. And of course, farming and, and so on. <clears throat> the easiest way, of course, is change our attitude. And we can see that now with the coronavirus in China, the CO2 emissions are really uh, reducing. But as Einstein mentioned, uh, there's two billion people coming from poverty to lower middle class in the next couple of centuries, demanding energy, demand, demanding products. So without us wanting to reduce our standard of living, this would be difficult to do something about. So we have moved into increasing efficiency. I will give you a couple of examples of this, but to my perspective, Gas is clearly one of the, the uh, ways of increased efficiency, also when you look at uh, CO2 emissions. And the most expensive and complicated part is CO2 capture, but we still have to do it anyway. And we believe that we will have to use uh, green energy uh, as long as it is also viable. But I will give you an example of why I think the transition period would create some, some uh, challenges also for this. I would like to start off with a fun fact, but it, it involves shipping industry and it involves uh, increasing efficiency. This is the flying cloud, and in the 1850s, they put sails on sail. Prior to this, it was common with only one sail taking it in a direction, and when they created this method of sailing, they reduced the time used for going around South America from 200 to 89 days. I could also mention it was the first ship with a female navigator, so that also could have something to do with it, probably. And of course, with the bilbus bow, you create equalizing waves, reducing the drag. So Increasing uh, efficiency has been done in shipping over several, and, and uh, the recent presentation also showed that increasing, or increasing efficiency on engines would have uh, a lot uh, of effect as well. Uh, moving into the energy uh, transition forecast by the MVGL, you could see that gas is the only fossil fuel that will be stable or increasing during the next years, and coal and oil will decrease. And one of the reasons we believe it is, is of course uh, its efficiency, but uh, in terms of CO2, uh, coal has about twice as CO2 emissions as gas have. And an example is when Ormen Lang uh, went from Norway to UK, the reduction in CO2 emissions in UK was 55 million tons per year, which is equal to all of Norway's CO2 emissions. So gas is clearly something also from an uh, um, environmentally perspective is a, a, a very decent thing to do. And if we look at South Africa, with 450 million tons of CO2 emission from coal alone, you could reduce the CO2 emissions from that specific country by uh, 220 million tons. While if you reduce energy, uh, transition energy production from 
called to God. And there's a lot of uh, countries um, with a heavy coal production uh, for today. This is one of the reasons why I think we will struggle a bit in the transition period moving to green energy. So here you can see a 360 megawatt uh, offshore wind farm. And if you are to produce 10 seconds of backup power, you need a container of Tesla batteries. And if you are to produce 2.5 days backup power, you need a container ship full of batteries. And you could do the same with a 450 megawatt gas-fired uh, combined cycle power plant. And you mentioned, Einstein, a bit about uh, the difficulty or the, the challenges of storing and transport natural gas. But this is the main challenge of uh, renewable energy. In Norway, we are lucky because of the hydro plants have the batteries on the far side of production. All other renewable alternatives have to produce energy before storing it. And then you are talking about hydrogen, which is even more complex to transport than LNG because it's about 250 uh, degrees uh, below zero and 600 bars of pressure. So it's a huge um, challenge to solve this. We will get there, but when? And what do we do in the meantime? <clears throat> if we are putting that aside for a bit, we are agreeing, at least when I'm speaking, that we need to have uh, that change of attitude that we, we could um, see uh, for us, and we need the, to increase uh, efficiency and all other means necessary. The international agency, energy agency states that we have to handle 850 million tons of CO2 per year in the next decade, up from 50 million tons per, per uh, year today. And the number is actually lower, but there's some projects going on, so I'm taking them into the, the calculation. This is a $100 billion market investing in CO2 handling capacity. And the conventional technology works like this. The flue gas is entering through an absorber where it's sprayed in liquid solvent, extracting the CO2 from the flue gas. The solvent is taken into a stripper where it's heated up. It releases the CO2 and it's reused. And based on the conventional technology, you get these large towers. And this is the 3C unit. And you can see it's a bit smaller, but that's not the whole uh, story. We actually have twice the capacity of the larger units. For those who haven't been to TCM Mongsta, it's the same as Akar or Mitsubishi or Fluor is uh, uh, building in conventional A-mine capture. And it's about the same height as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. This is the absorption tower of the 3C technology compared to this. And this is the stripping tower. In our technology, we fitted that inside a standard 40 feet ISA container. And we are able to do so because we introduce high G to distributing the solvents. And it could be compared to what we did when we washed clothes in the 50s, and then you get the centrifuge on a washing machine. You could 
uh, dewater a lot of our clothes in a much smaller area at a much larger speed. We use the same principle of high g-forces instead of gravity. The key features we have is that we, by reducing the size through high g, the core components are reduced by about 90%, so we get an overall 75% reduction in size, and the cost of steel alone would give us a 50% capex reduction. We are scaling it by modules, so if you have 250,000 tons of capacity in one module, and then you could add four modules, then you could start taking on small gas-fired power plants. That being said, I believe in a couple of years there will be uh, technologies with less parasitic energies more suitable for post-combustion energy capture. But in terms of having uh, uh, process technology, steel, aluminum, and so on, we are uh, more than suitable because of our size to retrofit on those plants. This is a refinery of Total in Antwerp. And you can see, first of all, there's not a large chimney you could put one unit on and start capturing. There's 50 different points of emission, and there's no room to place this. Our technology was initiated by Equinor in 2007 because they wanted to uh, investigate CO2 capture from offshore installations. And based on that, we have built a very compact and a very lightweighted CO2 capture technology, which means that we could place our equipment on top of existing infrastructure. We don't need additional space for retrofitting. We could just put it on top of a building. And this is representative for a lot of the industrial areas today. There's simply no room. And if they have room, they would like to spend that room for increasing production. Regarding OPEX, we see that our process technology itself is quite similar to conventional technology, because, uh, but because we could uh, use a lot more viscous solvents and because we have about 2 to 5% of the inventory of the larger capture plants, we could use more expensive and viscous solvents, clearly and significantly also addressing the OPEX. We are soon ready for market. This is our 10 ton per day pilot currently being tested at Equinor's test facilities in Posten here in Norway. And we have a lot of uh, benefactors and a lot of uh, uh, large uh, potential clients funding us non-dilutive until now. We are currently in discussion for investments. So if anyone are interested, please feel free to leave your card afterwards. But we are uh, revolutionary for many markets, both because of retrofillability and we could keep the cost per ton capture CO2 low, even at smaller and medium-sized uh, points of emission, and because it is uh, easy to retrofit. As I mentioned, we have won some awards. This is our core team. We have a business development uh, model where we are not planning to build organizations for delivering these, uh, uh, this equipment by ourselves, but we are teaming up with large existing uh, providers of uh, uh, equipment in, within process technology. Um, as mentioned, we are 
being advisory for several governmental and other uh, institutions. We were top six at the Green Awards, where we were um, invited to celebrate with the Crown Prince of Norway. We are uh, a member of the Repsol Accelerator Program, one of six companies globally. I've been invited to speak to OGCI, the OGCI Investment Day, as one of our global uh, technologies globally to uh, address the modular scalable speedy deployment approach. We, instead of going large, uh, having tailor-made um, capture plants, we could deploy at the speed uh, of the customers. We have one specific case where uh, automobile um, constructor uh, in Europe addressed us, they would like us to provide technology for their providers of steel. Because for the steel factory to invest in capturing all of their uh, steel plant, when their customers were buying 10% and had the payability for CO2 capture on 10% of their stock, uh, would be uh, commercial suicide. But by doing this modular, they could invest in the first module when the company uh, 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 buying 10% of their production were capable of paying for CO2 capture, then they could add on modules when other customers would like uh, emission-free products as well. And as Einstein mentioned, uh, two weeks from now, I will be in Sarah Week uh, receiving the Energy uh, Innovation Pioneer Award uh, as one of six companies globally. but I think uh, you probably would like to have the rest of the day off. If there's any questions, feel free to ask. Okay, I think, you know, we have a bit of time, so it's an interesting topic and a topic which probably not a lot of people here are experts in. Uh, so in case there are any questions or if somebody actually dares to ask any questions, then at least we could uh, we'd open for those. As a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, the star and one on your telephone keypad if you wish to ask a question. Uh, okay, I think we take one question here from the audience first. Let's see. Just two seconds. Of course, uh, capturing CO2 is uh, one thing, but uh, once you have captured it, uh, what do you do with it? And of course, if you <coughs> spread small uh, units around, uh, I guess, the question of where do you go with the CO2 is, uh, is a difficult issue. Yes, it's a very good question, and the uh, answer is different, on different in different parts of the world. If you look to U.S., uh, there's a lot of EUR, uh, enhanced oil recovery. So basically they're short on CO2. They pump CO2 down in oil wells to extract more oil. In Norway, in another lights project, they intend to store it. So they will inject it into dry oil wells, and it will be permanently stored. Uh, for small um, amounts of CO2, utilization cases could be uh, uh, also interesting to look at. You could produce carbon, cement, you could produce uh, fuels, by uh, adding hydrogen, you could kind of recreate uh, methane. Uh, so there's a lot of, of different possibilities for 
taking the CO2 off our hands while we capture it. Uh, Oxy, for instance, is large in U.S. on, on uh, using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. And the Northern Light is an interesting project because uh, the, it's the first well in the North Sea being drilled where they are not looking for hydrocarbons. And the, the rig operating on that field was West Hercules, owned by SFL, on contract with Seadrill. So that's part of kind of drilling for uh, caves where you can actually put the CO2. So uh, that's, of course, the, the, you know, probably the best use for the CO2. I'm not sure if, if there's any more questions. We have one more here. Uh, but okay, we can try the microphone so uh, the people in the webcast also can listen in. Um, could you just comment on the cost of reduction per metric ton of, ca of capture for the carbon that you're capturing and compare that to the previous question, what's the market rate for selling CO2 uh, you know, today? Yeah, the, the most developed market, uh, as mentioned, is the U.S. And in the U.S., you have the Q45, which is a tax credit system. Last week, it was uh, advised by the IRS on how to, to uh, take advantage of this uh, Q45. And that uh, tax credit system is on utilization. That means EOR, you get a $35 tax credit, and then it's about, $20 payability for CO2 per ton. So in the ballpark of around $50 is, is uh, in the U.S. market where you should be to get an economically viable situation for the point of emission. It really depends on the flue gas. If you burn uh, methane in gas turbines, you have a flue gas containing about 4% CO2, so that will be an expensive uh, uh, capture. If you have a process industry emission, it could contain 15% CO2, which makes it much easier and cheaper to, to um, capture. But let's say in a ballpark of $30, and then you have transportation and, and utilization costs on top of that. I guess, you know, the utilization cost could be positive if you're using it for different purposes. Yeah, but the utilization will be a cost, and then you could have payability for the end product. So that is also, of course, something that you would have to calculate on a case-specific basis. Okay. Any more questions? Otherwise, I think we adjourn for today. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for attending this rather long uh, quarterly presentation, and uh, uh, good luck and uh, have a good evening. Thanks.